All right, again, the book of Revelation. Um, if you didn't get a handout, there's somewhere. Larry's got them, I think, somewhere. Raise your hand if you did not get a handout. You'd like one. Anybody need one there? Jack needs one back there, Larry. There you go. Um, and then you can turn to uh, Revelation 1, 1 through 3. We're going to look at these first few verses here tonight. Um, but we're going to look at those, in addition to those first few verses, as kind of an introduction. We're also going to look at some basics to this book, just as far as author, setting, audience, um, those who are recipients of, the, of this letter, uh, which we'll look at more in depth here in about two weeks. Um, and then we're also going to recap briefly some of the approaches that, that people have kind of adopted with this book as far as interpretation goes. And uh, this is why just last semester we kind of just broke down some of the big topics like the tribulation, the millennium, the rapture, that kind of stuff. That was kind of like the foundation, all right? And so now we get into Revelation and... Uh, Really, everybody's all good until about chapter four. That's when all the debates start to happen. So anyways, we'll get into all of that. Um, but let's start here. Let's just read these, these few verses, and, and then we'll kind of, I want to point out a couple things, um, and then we'll look at some basics and, and go from there. But Revelation 1, 1 through 3, and this is what we read. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep or obey what is written in it, for the time is near. All right, we'll stop there uh, tonight, and, uh, and that's kind of the introduction, but really as we'll look at next week, the rest of chapter one, um, it's a big kind of introduction, but I want to just point out a couple key items here in these opening verses um, and this brings up the point number one here on your handouts. Um, now, the translation I just read starts off with the revelation of Jesus Christ. How many, just by a show of hands, have of, have that same translation of Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, now, other translations, as like I've got my Bible over here, has the revelation from Jesus Christ. How many of you have the revelation from Jesus Christ, right? So that's your point number one here. Is it the revelation of or is it the revelation from? All right, so is it of or is it from? Now, John uses a very unique word here that could either mean of um, or about uh, uh, it could be the revelation about jesus christ but it's also a word that could mean from as well like hey this is given from jesus to john or it could be both and 
I tend to be in the camp, just based off my own convictions and the commentaries I've read, and um, I tend to be um, in the camp, which it means almost both. Meaning, it's the revelation from Jesus, about Jesus, for the followers of Jesus. And we'll look specifically more at that as we look at the churches and everything. Um, but the revelation of or the revelation from, and I take it as both. And so that's one thing to point out. But number two, it was given to show his people the things that must soon take place. And then later on, John says the time is near. So your point number two here on your handout is what does John mean by soon and near? What in the world does John mean by soon and near? So this book was written 2,000 years ago. So what does John mean by soon and near? And in 1 John 2.18, as we'll see, it's, this is the same John writing Revelation. It's the same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But in 1 John 2.18, John said that we're in the last hour. Um, when he's writing that, which if you take a later date to the book of Revelation, which most conservative scholars are going to say that John wrote the book of Revelation about mid-90s, which means about 1 John would have been couple decades probably before that but so John is saying even in first John that we're in the last hour meaning we're, we're in the end times now so the question is is how long is that last hour how long are these last days again what does John mean by soon or near uh, and some people literally have looked at these these couple verses looked at those two words and said see this whole book needs to be just thrown out because that was 2,000 years ago, and John didn't know what he was talking about. Well, let's think about it like this. Imagine me and Stephanie are getting our kids gathered, and we hop into the car, and we begin driving to the mountains in New Mexico. We were supposed to do this over Christmas break until my grandmother and my aunt both got sick. It's a whole story, so we ended up not doing that. But let's just imagine that's what we did. We get in the car, get all the kids in there. We're driving to the mountains in New Mexico, um, and if you've done this or you've traveled to the mountains in Colorado, you know exactly this trip. So instead of thinking West Texas, Northwest Texas, think like West Kansas, right? Um, but we travel then, we get in the car, we then travel through western Oklahoma, right? The trees start disappearing and the land gets a little flatter, you know, you know the route. And so then you enter into kind of Northwest Texas. Now, my dad grew up in West Texas. We used to go out to Midland, Odessa. If you're familiar with that area, a little town of Andrews, um, their, their trees are bushes that like are this tall. You know, that's their idea of uh, landscape, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. But anyway, so it gets really flat. It gets really treeless. Um, and so there you go into eastern New Mexico. Uh, anybody travel through eastern New Mexico, those little towns? Yeah, you, you find out really how hamburgers are made, right? And you, you, you smell the cattle. Um, as you go through some of these towns and you're just like, what is going on? Um, but it never fails. As we're, as we're going through this route, the kids begin to ask, when will we be there? Now, 
our kids ask this even before we leave Enid's, you know, are we still in Enid's? Like, when will we be there? Like, okay, stop asking that question already. Um, but they're going to begin to ask, when will we be there? What, what they're asking is, is when will we get out of the car? When will we arrive at our destination? When will we see the pine trees? When will we smell the clean air? When will we feel the cold mountain wind? In other words, when will these things take place? That's what they're asking, right? In the same way the disciples asked Jesus, especially on um, the Mount of Olives, like, when will these things take place? Um, so what am I going to respond back to them there in eastern New Mexico? I'm going to tell them we're, we'll be there in just a bit, right? Some of us use this terminology, right? Well, I'll, I'll be there in a bit. Uh, well, we'll get there here in a bit. And so I'm going to say we'll be there in just a bit. Well, that's a general term for a time period. And for them, from their perspective, I might as well have said 10 years, right? Um, but what I meant was, by saying we'll be there in just a bit was, we'll be there in five hours, right? But I used a general term to represent that time. But then you fast forward a couple of hours, and we begin to see a shadow of a mountain in the distance. And maybe we begin to pull, point it out, and they, they get all excited. And then they ask again, when will we be there? Meaning, when will we get out and actually experience the sights and the sounds of the mountains instead of just hearing about them or seeing them off in the distance? And what am I going to tell them probably at that point? We'll be there soon. We'll be there soon. The mountains are near. See, look upon you. They're, they're near. We'll be there soon. Again, I'm using general terms in which I might as well have told them 10 years, but for me, what I meant was three hours. Right? Now, when you say soon, you might mean one hour or 30 minutes or 10 minutes, right? Um, soon, what we mean by that is soon, the time is near. Again, or we'll be there in just a bit. These are all kind of relative general terms for time. To say these things are coming, these things are upon us. And really, for John, not only is he saying that these things are upon us, but he's also saying these things will happen. It's kind of like an assurance, kind of like when we tell our kids we'll be there soon. What we're saying is, it's upon us, it's coming, we will get there. Just be patient and quit asking the question, right? But in the meantime, what John will in essence get at, and um, basically what he's going to get at is, here's what we are to be about in the meantime, in light of these things that are soon to take place. And that's, in essence, what he's getting at here, right? So, um, which brings us to why. Why is John writing this book? Why does Jesus give this revelation? Which, by the way, it's singular, right? Sometimes I'll hear people say revelations. Hey, we're going to study revelations. It, it's singular. It's just the revelation. Um, but why is John writing this book? Why does Jesus give this revelation um, about these things that are soon to take place? And so before we get to that why, let's just look at some basics to kind of set this up. Uh, we've read these first few verses, but who's writing this? What's going on here? Um, so question number one here is, who wrote the book of Revelation? Who wrote the book of Revelation? Well, I've been talking about him here, and it's John. It's John. This is not John the Baptist. This is the Apostle 
John. Now, there's some debate about the authorship, as there is in most scholarly circles, about everything with the Bible. Um, but for history, for throughout church history, and really, uh, there's a lot of evidence to back this up. Uh, it's John, and not just in John, but John the Apostle. Um, we read about James and John, right? The sons of Zebedee, one of the twelve, right? This is who we're talking about, that John. He's the same John who, again, wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he wrote Revelation here as well. And he writes it while in exile on the island of Patmos, or at least that's when he receives the Revelation. Um, and we'll look at Patmos here in just a moment. But again, there are very good reasons to hold to the view that John is the author of this book. Um, so question number two then with this is, again, where was John when he received the revelation? Well, we find out a little later on in uh, verse 9 that John was on this island called Patmos. P-A-T-M-O-S, this island of Patmos. So he was in exile, uh, had been basically, by way of punishment, sent out to this island known as Patmos. It was off the southwest coast of present-day Turkey. So, Lori, maybe you'll see it as you're flying into Turkey there, right? Um, it's on the southwest coast of present-day Turkey, maybe about 30 miles off the shore or so. Um, but it's a, small mount, it's a small island. It's only about 25 miles in circumference. Um, the highest point on this mountain or island is 800 feet. Um, but it served as a place of banishment during the Roman period. And so many people believe that John was an old man at the time of his banishment. Um, so advanced in years and while... Um, or he was exiled there during the reign of Emperor Domitian. Domitian ruled as emperor from A.D. 81 to A.D. 96, and he stopped reigning in 96 because he was assassinated in 96 at like 44, 45 years old. Um, but many people believe that, here's your next question, when did he write Revelation? most likely sometime around A.D. 95 or 96. So A.D. 95 or 96. So basically, most people believe that he wrote it towards the end of Domitian's reign. Um, so that's kind of just where John was, who the author is, John, um, and when he wrote it. But what exactly is the book of Revelation. Because I'm sure you know, it, it's a lot different than like the book of Acts, right? You just know walking through it, it's unlike any other book in the New Testament. But the title Revelation comes from the book's opening verse, the revelation from or of Jesus Christ. Um, and this is where we get like, um, the, the Greek word here is for like apocalypse, you know, apocalyptic literature, you'll hear that kind of language. Um, that, that's where that Greek word really means. And it means to reveal something or to make known something that was at one point hidden. So it'd be like, you know, something's behind this curtain and it's hidden back there. And so we, we've now revealed it as we take the curtain away. We reveal what's behind the curtain. Um, 
So that's where the book obviously gets its title. And it's, again, unlike any other book in the New Testament, the closest book that has a lot in common with it is the book right before this one, the book of Jude, right? That little short, little um, book. You, you've read it. it. It's a very quick read, but man, you, it's so much is packed into that letter. Uh, but as one person said, the difference with Revelation compared to the rest of the New Testament is not in doctrine, but in literary genre and subject matter. So again, it is a type of, this is your um, blanks here. What type of writing is the book of Revelation? It is a type of apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. It's a type of apocalyptic literature, and that's important because this type of literature is characterized usually by visions and unique revelations given by gods, and oftentimes these visions within apocalyptic literature are filled with strange symbols or imagery. Um, however, revelation is unique in apocalyptic literature. Because a lot of it is not just apocalyptic, it's also prophetic, which is your next blank there. It's also prophetic. Which again, as we just read in these opening verses, um, to show his servants what must soon take place. Um, and he goes on to talk about in verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So it's also prophetic literature as well, meaning it points to happenings or events that have yet to occur. But, and this is really, really important, your third blank here, it's not just apocalyptic literature, it's not just prophetic literature, it's also pastoral. It's also pastoral in its content. So in other words, based off the opening, based off the closing, based off the fact that it's addressed to these specific churches, it's like a pastoral letter using apocalyptic and prophetic um, type language and approach. So it's a very unique book. It's very unique and just everything else in the New Testament. Um, but, as we'll see a little later on, there's a lot of similarities with John's writings. Um, some of the imagery, some of the language, the vocabulary that you read, like in the Gospel of John, 1 John, places like that. Um, but it's apocalyptic literature, it's prophetic, it's pastoral, um, which brings us to the next and original question we asked. To whom... And why did John write this book? Um, well, as we'll see in the coming weeks, and as you keep reading through these first couple chapters, John specifically wrote to seven churches there. Your next fill in the blank there. The seven, the seven churches. You can just write the number seven if that helps. The seven churches. Now these were seven 
actual literal churches in John's day. Churches in Asia Minor, which again is modern day Turkey, right? So we'll be praying for Lori as she goes there next week. Um, and as we read, it's to make known what is upon us, what will happen and what is happening. Or here's your blank here. Why did John write this letter? Because as we see, it's from Jesus, but to make known to make known what was soon to happen and to encourage the believers. Again, this is a pastoral letter. So to make known what was soon to happen and to encourage the believers to stand firm in Jesus, remain loyal to Jesus, and be comforted by the fact that no matter what, Jesus is coming again. So again, it's not just apocalyptic literature. It's not just prophetic. It's also pastoral. So yes, to make known what was soon to happen and to encourage the believers to stand firm in Jesus, remain loyal to Jesus, and be comforted by the fact that no matter what, Jesus is coming again. So according to one source, the seven churches mentioned here in these first few chapters we're all located, again, within the Roman province of Asia, western Turkey, opposite the island of Patmos where John got this revelation. And although there was other churches at that time, it appears, according to this source at least, that John chose these seven because they formed a natural route for a circuit rider. In other words, to be delivered easily to these churches. And if you see it on the map, you can really see how that looks, uh, but they form this natural route for a circuit rider, and it could start in Ephesus, because that was would be one of the closest cities to Patmos, start in Ephesus, <clears throat> and then move in a clockwise direction through Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. At the same time, John, um, we know, is very interested in numbers. Uh, we'll, we'll see that as we walk through this book. He loves numbers. Um, and so this source would argue that it's no coincidence that John chose seven churches. Um, the number seven is often symbolic in Scripture of totality or completeness, as we see like in the seven days of creation. And the implication here is that John's message was not just intended for these seven specific churches, but really it was relevant to all churches at the time and in the generations since. So John is writing to seven churches, and at the time of his writing, Roman persecution of Christians was widespread, it was rampant, it was growing, and false teachings were everywhere. And Roman authorities were beginning to enforce emperor worship. You must have no king but Caesar. You must have no God but the emperor. So Christians who held that Jesus is Lord, they faced growing persecution, including the possibilities of being killed. And so even as we read in chapter 1, verse 9, John had been exiled to the island for his work as a Christian missionary. And so while, while or why John is writing to them is he's warning them, just as Jesus is doing as well, against the coming or now arrived opposition and oppression. 
So at the time of his writing, some Christians were advocating just compromise. Why don't we just compromise with the Roman government? Maybe we could worship the emperor and Jesus. Maybe we could have two side by side. But John is writing to believers to say, you must stand firm. You must remain loyal to Jesus and him alone uh, in these last days. In other words, these things are upon us. They're coming. They will happen. In the meantime, be patient, stand firm, remain loyal to Jesus. Be comforted by the fact that God is in control. Jesus will return, and salvation is for all people who receive it. So it's a unique book written by John. It's apocalyptic, it's prophetic, it's pastoral. But ultimately, as we saw in these opening verses, this book is from Jesus and about Jesus. And its overall aim is to encourage the believers, the churches, to stand firm to the very end, to stand loyal to Jesus, to stand in the hope and the assurance that comes with knowing Jesus and being found in him. So that's kind of like a basic overview of this book. But I wanted to kind of review tonight also the approaches really quick to this book. And you say, well, why? Why do we need to do that? Because it will impact your interpretation of this book. This is why there's so many debates, because there's different approaches to this book. And really, again, as I said, the debate often comes with beginning in chapter 4 and beyond. Um, and we touched on these uh, different approaches right before the holidays. Uh, but here's the five kind of main interpretational approaches to the book of Revelation. So number one, you see there on your handout, is the futurist view, the futurist view. So to kind of help you just remember this one, just think the future view. You can write future there. I'll write this in red so we can see. The future view. This approach basically sees everything from Revelation 4.1. And if you don't know the structure of this book, Basically, what's going to happen in chapters 2 and 3 is John is going to, or Jesus really, is going to address the seven churches that we just talked about. He's going to address those seven churches, and then after that, he begins to see these visions. And so, this is where the debate kind of rises at 4.1 and beyond. The future view says, all of that, from chapter 4, verse 1 and on, all of that has yet to happen. It's going to happen in the future. Meaning, as you and I sit here even today, all of that is in the future. And all of it's going to happen right before the second coming or the second advent of Jesus. And so all of those events from 4-1 and beyond are, have not yet happened. They're all in the future. So that's the futurist view. The other view is the historicist view. The historicist view to help you remember this, you can just write, we, we're in it view, or we are in it view. We're in it view. Specifically, this approach understands Revelation, all of it, to be a prophecy of church history from the first advent of Jesus, which we just celebrated, right? Christmas, his first coming. All of that, so Revelation refers to everything that's happened from that moment all the way to the second advent of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. So it's kind of church history 
in that entire time period. So we're in it right now. It's happening. It has happened. It is happening. And yes, it still will happen as well. So that's basically the historicist approach. The third one is the preterist view or the preterist approach. So to help you remember this one, just write it's finished view or it is finished view. This view stands in basically in complete contrast to the first view, the future is to view. So the preterist approach says that the prophecies in the book of Revelation were fulfilled. They were fulfilled not long after John wrote the book. So in other words, they would argue, hey, it happened right before John wrote the book, as John was writing the book, and then soon right after he wrote the book. In other words, as we read from 4.1 and beyond, it's already happened. It, it's already done, other than really chapters 21 and 22. But they would argue that pretty much everything else has already happened. And again, they would look at Domitian, who was the emperor at that time, and everything that was going on with him. They look at the fall of Jerusalem. They look at the just the Roman emperors and all of that and the connection there. But they would basically argue that it's finished, it's already happened. Your fourth view is the idealist view or approach. So to help you to remember this one, this one is its symbolic view. It's symbolic. So what they mean by this is that Revelation does not contain prophecies or specific historical events. Instead, it's just using symbols to express timeless principles or truths concerning the conflict between good and evil and God's kingdom and the kingdom of this world leading up to new Jerusalem, new heaven and earth, and so on. So in other words, it's just kind of a symbolic view to kind of represent all history and past, present, and future, but it's not referring to specific prophecies or specific historical events. So it's just all symbolic imagery, allegory, to represent just more ideas, general truths. Um, so that is the symbolic view. And then the fifth one, and again, this is becoming more and more popular over these last couple decades, but the fifth one is the eclectic view or the eclectic approach. So you can probably figure this one out. It's a combination view to help you remember this one. It's a combination or a combo. I'm just going to write combo. It's a combination, meaning at least outside of the historicist approach, meaning the futurist approach, the preterist approach, and the idealist approach. It's kind of a combination of all of that. So a lot of it has been fulfilled, but some of it hasn't been fulfilled. Some of it is being fulfilled right now. Some of it will be fulfilled. Some of it is just symbolic. Um, some of it is, is yet to happen. It's just kind of a combo um, of all of that. So I bring that up because, again, your, your approach, your, whichever camp you kind of 
tend to fall in, uh, will greatly impact really how you see this book. May impact how you see the rest of Scripture as far as prophecies go and what has been fulfilled, um, what currently is being fulfilled, and what has yet to be fulfilled. Um, but again, it's going to impact your interpretation of Revelation. Um, and so I'm going to try to balance all of these views as we walk through and kind of point out as we get to certain images or visions, kind of where different camps fall in. Um, but which one is the best? Which approach is the best? And I think I would encourage all of us um, to learn from all of them, to consider all of them, to evaluate all of them, because they all have strengths, um, but they all have weaknesses as well. Um, but ultimately, there's a few rule of thumbs here, I think, for us when it comes to interpreting Revelation, really any other book for that matter. But number one is let Scripture speak for itself. Let Scripture speak for itself. Meaning, and when I talk about these rule of thumbs, they, they all have to kind of be in combination here. Uh, but let Scripture speak for itself. In other words, read from Scripture, don't read into Scripture. And many theologians and, and people have pointed this out before, how oftentimes we can basically tell Scripture what it ought to say instead of what it really actually says. So read from Scripture. Don't read into Scripture. This is true of anything, right? Let Scripture speak into you. Let God put you on the table. He as the surgeon and let him examine you down to your very core using his words in your life. So read from Scripture, don't read into Scripture. And as you come across these images, and you're going to come across a lot of Old Testament references. The book of Revelation is almost like every other line is an Old Testament reference. Uh, it's very clear that John is trying to stir up something with that, with his Jewish audience, but also just with the Old Testament passages and everything. We'll look more at that as we get into it. But when you come across those Old Testament references and New Testament references, for example, when you come across the word lamb, you know, go back and look at how John used that word lamb throughout his writings. And just go read the Gospel of John. You'll notice in the first opening pages that he uses it a decent amount on the tongue of John the Baptist, who said, Behold, the Lamb of God." takes away the sin of the world, right? And John kind of makes that declaration. John the Baptist makes that declaration and testimony. Um, but go back and look at those things. And notice even these first few verses, how he talks about the word, how he, the testimony, and uh, he testifies of everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Go back and read 1 John, how he starts that off. He's talking about the word of God. He's talking about the word of God when he opens up the gospel of John. Um, some commentators have argued that John's the only one that actually refers to Jesus as the Word of God. Um, so when you come across stuff like that, man, peel back the layers. Do that digging uh, throughout Scripture. So go back and see how these expressions or these images or these references are used in their original context. Um, and specifically see how they fit into the story of Scripture and the story and message of Jesus and his followers' writings and really how all that fits into the message of Revelation. Um, because again, this book, all, it, this book ties it all together. 
um, ties all the New Testament, the whole of the Old Testament, just kind of everything just kind of meets in the book of Revelation beautifully and brilliantly and really powerfully. Um, I mean, the, it, it's all comes to this moment um, because, as I've said before, it, it's important for us to remember the Bible is not just a book of full of just different writings from human authors. There is a God who has so brought this scripture in such a way as this to, into our hands. The way he's brought it all together over 1,400 years um, spans the, the different writings, different authors, different contexts and cultures and, and everything. And, and, but it all ties together so nicely, so brilliantly. Um, and he's trying to present us a message and to get humanity to respond to that message. Belief or disbelief? Receive Jesus as your Lord and King or reject him as your Lord and King? Um, and John too, as, again, as, I, as you come across these expressions, because if this is John writing this, which I believe it is, then go back and read his other writings. Go back and read the Gospel of John. Go back and read some of his other writings and see how some of his language pops up again and why would he use similar language or imagery. Um, so that'll help you just kind of letting Scripture speak for itself. Um, and so the, the second thing here, the second rule of thumb is also let the style of writing speak for itself. Let the style of writing speak for itself. Because again, you can't walk through the book of Revelation like you walk through the book of Acts. There are two different types of writings. You can't walk through the book of Revelation like you do um, Romans or Galatians. Uh, they're just two different types of writings. And so as you let Scripture speak for itself and you, you're studying the context, and you're, you're seeing how it all ties together, the Old Testament and New Testament, the light of Christ and everything, also the, the, let the style of writing speak for itself. Um, because again, it's apocalyptic. It's prophetic type writing. Um, and that is a unique type of writing, but it's also with a pastoral tone, um, which is meant for all believers. Meaning, as one source said, we are more likely to discover the author's original intent if we approach Revelation with the assumption of its literary integrity, meaning respecting the type of writing it is, than if we attempt at every turn to judge it by a modern Western mentality. In other words, we've got to respect what style of writing it is, where John is coming from, and why Jesus chose in such a way in this type of writing to reveal these things that are soon to take place. Um, and then three, this is three. And again, all of this is kind of, if we're going to get this right as we walk through, we need to take all of these into consideration. And then number three, consider the work of other believers in this matter. Consider the work of other believers in this matter. There are some really good biblical scholars, theologians throughout church history who've done a really good job in just walking through the text. And, and some of them fall in different camps, uh, but they love Jesus, they love his words, and it's just consider their work, consider their, their takeaways on that passage or that, that the overall picture of what John is getting at with, with something in this, this book, um, but evaluate their work, learn from their work. Uh, but first, 
First, do your own praying through Scripture and your own reading through Scripture. Um, because the Spirit of God that lives in you is the same Spirit that lives in that theologian who wrote that book, right? Um, the Spirit of God that lives in you uh, is the same Spirit that lives in them. And so, do all that, but first, you be in the Word. You be praying through the Word. You know what the Word says. Old Testament, New Testament, and then say how, oh man, I remember, that, that goes back to this. Oh, that goes back to this. Like, man, this is how God is working and all that. Um, so anyways, I, I think these rules of thumb can help us as we slowly walk through this text um, in this book and see how it fits into the Old Testament, how the Old Testament fits into it, how it fits into the New Testament, how the New Testament fits into it, and how it all is really pointing to Jesus. It's about Jesus, from Jesus, for the followers of Jesus. Ultimately, to give us that assurance, that confidence, that peace, knowing that God is in control, man, these things will happen, and Jesus is coming back again. And so despite what we might see in the culture, despite what causes our hearts just to flip upside down, the things we witness or see or hear about, despite what might happen, know that Jesus is coming again. And I know it's going to be a wonky year. It always is during election years. And our culture is weird. And the world is weird. But God is in control. Jesus is King and Lord. He's conquered sin and death and resurrection. He lives. And man, he's coming back again. And so, it's yes, it's apocalyptic. Yes, it's prophetic. Yes, there's a lot here. But it's also pastoral to give us assurance that, man, this is about Jesus, from Jesus, for the followers of Jesus. It's all points to him. And so, um, with that, let me close us in prayer. Uh, next week, we're going to really just skip the basics and that overview and just jump right into chapter 1. And then here, in about two weeks, we're going to break down these seven churches. We'll spend about two weeks doing that. And then we'll jump into, kind of in sections, breaking out the rest of the book of Revelation, building up to the big ending, which is the best part, you know. And so, you don't want to... Don't want to miss that, right? Uh, but anyways, let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you. We love you. And we thank you for your words that we have before us. We thank you for the gift of it. We thank you for the blessing of it. And Lord, that I pray that we would be in your word every day, just praying through your word, wrestling with your word, just vulnerable before your words, that you would speak into us, that you would convict us, that you would transform us and change us more and more into the image of Jesus in every way. And Lord, as we even come across maybe difficult passages or difficult books like the book of Revelation, just give us wisdom, give us understanding, give us peace. But Lord, help us to know that, that you also give us this as, as a declaration of who you are and what you've done and what you are doing and what you will do. And so, Father, we, we thank you for that. And we thank you for no matter what might happen in this life, this world is, is fading. And we look forward to a new day, to a new heavens and a new earth, being with you in glory forever. And so, Lord, I pray that in the meantime, as we wait for these things to finally take place, help us to have patience, help us to have endurance and perseverance, Help us in all things to remain loyal to Jesus, faithful to Jesus. 
above and before anything or anyone else, any institution, any leader, anything. Help us to remain loyal and faithful to Jesus as the Lord and King of our life. Lord, I pray that you bless each person and family in your church as a result, as we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I will see you all later. If you've got any questions, I'll be up here.